Hello and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. My name is Rory McNamara, taking you back in the time machine today to look at all things in the WWE in September 2002. And I know I say this most months, but I really do mean all things. I've got Dan DeWitt on hand with me today. Dan, welcome. I'm going to need you. Yeah, it's, it's it's been a busy month, hasn't it? Busy, busy month indeed. So yeah, looking forward to, to, to recapping, reviewing and, and sort of hearing your thoughts because yeah, I've got a few myself. But yeah, <laughs> I don't doubt bot. it. Busy is a very well chosen adjective, my friend. I think we need to just stay calm for the first couple of minutes and just go through the news because that's relatively sanguine. Sure. Uh, first up, Austin v Goldberg. Well, Austin and Goldberg. It appears Steve Austin has indeed wrestled his last match for WWE. Pending the outcome of the court case where he hears alleged actions that we detailed last month, Austin's next pay-per-view match is likely to be in a new promotion. His own. The word is that he and his cyborg version, known to answer to the name of Bill Goldberg, have been keen to set up at least some form of side project wrestling company for quite some time, but now, given their employment statuses, it is highly possible they will look to get a full-time one off the ground. Steve Austin, gazumping Jeff Jarrett to the last. In other, more serious Austin news, it appears his divorce request has at least for now been dissolved. And of course, we expect all of this to come out in the wash after his court appearance, tentatively scheduled for November. Grab the remote, change the channel to WWF! Scott Steiner is telling people he is talking with WWE, even though he isn't. Confused? Well, because I am. He is putting the story out there in the hope it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Jim Ross has gone on the record as saying, we have made zero attempts to contact Scott Steiner in several months. That doesn't really make sense, but okay. We believe that Scott might be able to physically work a part-time schedule, but that remains to be seen. In any event, we have no plans to speak with Scott about coming to WWE at this time, but who knows? Creative could have a super concept for him and all of a sudden he shows up on Raw or SmackDown next week. Jeremy Borash of NWA TNA, however, predicted in his weekly internet column that Steiner will return to the ring next month, somewhere. Vince McMahon takes the stand for once. Well, he didn't need to stand up eight years ago. And after all, we wouldn't want to tweak the neck now, would we? But this month, Vince McMahon did do this inside a courthouse as part of a lawsuit filed by Nicole Bass over alleged sexual harassment by the WWF during her stint there. VKM himself was his usual diplomatic self, accusing her of throwing dirt against the wall, trying to make something stick, and that the lawsuit itself was a smear against the company. I think we've seen this movie before. Somewhat hypocritically, he also deemed that she had two left feet. Some of the claims made by Bass include one against Steve Lombardi, who accosted her whilst on a plane ride, and that because she turned down other unwanted sexual advances, she was ostracised and harassed. The trial continues. Tell him, Rocco! Engine, engine, number nine, on the New York transit line. If the train falls off the track, it must be your mama smoking crack! Yes, yes, y'all! Yes, yes, y'all! Yes, 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 y'all! Well, I wake up in the morning and I drink our coffee. We like our butter roll butter softly. Our apartment is nice and lofty. All you little suckers just back up off me. Back up off me. Back up off me. B-A-C-K-U-B off me! Ted Petty, best known to our project as Flyboy Rocco Rock, passed away this month after suffering a heart attack at the age of just 49. He wrestled on an independent show in Pershing, New Jersey against Devon Storm and complained of chest pains to his colleagues. It is believed he passed away in the car he was travelling in just a few minutes later. Petty was known as one of the true nice guys in professional wrestling. 
an opinion at the time myself, find it very easy to believe, and is described by Wade Keller in the PW Torch as generous with his time and wisdom. He was a former national champion and All-American at Rutgers University and also had a master's degree in education. Yet another sad loss to the wrestling world and yet another that came far too soon. You've been kicking ass here in WWE longer than, than almost anybody. Your accolades here in the WWE are, are unbelievable, but you know what? They're about to become even bigger. Oh, what do you mean by that? What's in the briefcase is what I'm wondering. Money, he's gonna give me, he's gonna give me my money. Wait a minute. Look at this. Triple H, you may recognize this world championship because you were the last man to officially wear it. It's been worn by some of the greatest champions in the history of this industry. And now Triple H, it will be again, because ladies and gentlemen, your new world champion, Triple H! What? Good God, what a, now this is an historic moment here on Raw. Triple H has just been awarded the heavyweight championship of the world. So the clip you heard there from the 2nd of September edition of Raw, Eric Bischoff came to the ring with a briefcase in hand. <laughs> at your own jokes. And in that briefcase, keep them close to hand, was a world title belt. Oh, well, that was a bit disappointing. Which he just went unhanded to Triple H. There you go. Gave him the world championship. No match. No battle royal. I can't believe this one, Dan. No tournament in Rio de Janeiro. He just gave him the bloody thing. What an absolute <laughs> mistake that is. Those who do not learn the best lessons of history, etc., etc. And Triple H's reign... Oh, God, I'm fucking just saying this word, Ray, but there you go. Did officially begin on September the 2nd. It has been ratified. It is part of the lineage. It is known, and I always get this wrong, I believe that, by all means, if I'm wrong on this correctly, I think this is called the World Heavyweight title in WWE law. Yeah, that's how I have it. That's good enough for me. Title and the World Heavyweights. Yeah, those those are the two. Yeah. There we go. It is effectively the old big gold belt, so... Eric Lanston should probably turn down the podcast for a few minutes on this one. So, Dan, we will be talking about Triple H's first meaningful defence a bit later on when we get to the pay-per-view. What are your <laughs> thoughts on a brand new world title being created? And did I mention it was given to Triple H? Just want to put that out there. Dan, your thoughts? <laughs> um, yeah, we, there should have been something like a tournament or something that, that, that led up to... to the pay-per-view to, to crown the champion I mean, that would have made more more sense rather than yeah, just the the handing over i mean i guess it plays into the bishop as a heel and he has his favorites and type thing well but yeah not not how i would have liked to see it i did i did like to see it. I, I it makes sense because you saw uh lesnar go ex- exclusive to smackdown so it made sense for raw to have its own champion if you will um so the the logic behind it like bringing the belt or creating a a world belt for for the brand makes sense just yeah execution not great could have could even if you could have even had it like um triple h is automatically instilled as the as a tournament finalist and then yeah rvd rvd has to do like the cinderella story of having to 
win uh, win a tournament to face Triple H in a way to stack the stack the odds against him if you want to do that kind of that kind of way. Just something that make that just, maybe make that the pay per view match. But yeah, at least arrive there in in a way that isn't just Triple H is the champion and then there's a number one there's a few kind of number one contenders type matches that RVD wins and gets in that way. Make it sort of put something around it. Yeah, I agree with you totally. I do get it from a character perspective. It does make sense that Eric Bischoff would want to hand a world title to somebody, but then does it because he's constantly talking about the spirit of competition that Raw supposedly is using that as a stick to beat SmackDown with. I do understand it. Um, Bischoff has been fantastic the last couple of months. He's been better than certainly I would have expected him to be. And one thing that he does so well is that even when I disagree with him as a character, he makes me believe him. Doesn't make me agree with him. He shouldn't. He's a heel. If I agreed with him, that would be a problem. But I believe he really is this oleaginous slime ball. And when he's there grinning and gurning for Triple H and fawning over him and doing the Hogan 97 bowing towards him, then I'm almost willing to forgive it. Now, this is supposedly a simulated sport, right? And in that regard, if you become the champion, even for the first time, you do something to get there. And I will give Triple H this. I wonder, and this is total conjecture, I haven't seen any proof of this in the sheets or anything. I wonder if even he was a little reticent to go through with this, because for all his faults, and let's face it, I share oh, pretty much about 100% of them on these podcasts every single month. He does have true respect for this business. Sometimes I think maybe too much and it doesn't manifest itself correctly, but he loves this stuff. You can't take that away from him and I wouldn't even try. And I just wonder at the back of his mind, he was thinking, yeah, even as a newly minted heel that I am, being given the world title by another heel GM, yeah, we would do this. It does make sense. You can apply it to the current stories, but it just feels a little flat and vapid. And it doesn't go in any way whatsoever towards trying to help the presentation of Triple H, which, as I've said, till I'm, till I'm blue in the face, is my number one problem with him. It is the way he's given to us on screen. We have to fucking take it, like it or not. And again, we all know the real reasons for that. I'm not going to go into those again now. Wait until the end of the year award show. I... I probably want to hate this more than I do, if I'm honest. I feel like I've almost talked my way into it. I don't think it's the disastrous booking decision that some people might. I'd be a bit surprised if it becomes one of our worst booking decisions in the end of year award show. But they could have tidied it up a little bit. I should say just anointing Triple H as the absolute number one contender and then having another match to get there. I know do you some think that's people why they had the match with Flair on, on Raw. Do you think that's do you think that's Triple H saying, look, I, I should at least beat Flair to then yeah, become yes. the Yeah, yes. Yeah, uh, that was the week after, wasn't it? It was Triple H and Flair on Raw. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, that that that, that mm-hmm. first night he had that he had he sort of had that first the first sort of defense quote-unquote yeah uh, it I, I think that might have even been, that might have just been to break saying that's a great call i'm already the champion but in his head maybe sort of justifying it by saying look i've beaten flair so now i can be the champion type 
15 minutes ago when we started recording, I was definite about how I was going to be on this topic. Now I'm far more ambivalent on it. I'm still leaning towards I wouldn't have done it, but you can see why, or at least how it makes sense. It's not the complete disaster that a lot of fans have written about. And I know this might just be conjecture based, but it's absolutely true that some people have turned up watching wrestling completely as a result of Triple H being handed a belt. Well, I hate to break this to you guys, but in a way, everybody gets handed belts. That's kind of how pro wrestling works and has for the last few years. In fact, let's, let's skip all this interruption part and um, um, let's go right to the end. Let's go right to the end. Very well. Billy, do you pledge to commit yourself into Chuck? Until then, do you part in sickness or in hell? Yes. Chuck, it's okay. Rico. Chuck, now's not the time to get cold feet. Trust me, just do it. Yes, 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 he said yes. I am so happy. Then by the power vested in me, I pronounce you. Oh, 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 oh. What? What are you doing? What, what, are you, what are you thinking? This wasn't supposed to happen this way. It wasn't supposed to go this far, Rico. Come on, Rico. What the hell is this? This was all just supposed to be a publicity stunt. Hey. We're not gay. I mean, we got nothing against gay people. <laughs> What's going on? This is all the gay people here. As a matter of fact, if I was gay, I probably wouldn't marry Chuck. <laughs> but that guy right there ain't pronouncing us nothing! I knew it! I knew you two would back out the last second. All of my hard work, all of this pageantry, all the publicity, all the attention was my idea, and you two guys are Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. So, what you heard there were excerpts from the September the 12th edition of SmackDown, the season premiere, lest we forget, which was due to be the commitment ceremony between Messrs Chuck Palumbo and Billy Gunn. Oh yes, they were going to tie the knots. This has been coming for a very long time. Days, weeks, even months, probably even the whole of 2002. Well, Billy and Chuck, whilst being tag team partners, there's been, as my old nine would say, something going on between them. There's been more than a little bit of frisson here and there. And 
It came to final fruition on September the 5th, when despite Billy Gunn losing a match, and that didn't put old Chuck off, who got down on bended knee and asked Billy to be his life partner. Oh, that's really nice, isn't it? So, was the wedding going to go off without a hitch the next week on SmackDown? Well, it began by Rico asking Stephanie McMahon if she wanted to be a witness. She originally said no, but soon relented. I mean, I know it takes a lot for Stephanie McMahon to agree to appear on television, so Rico's powers of persuasion there must have been especially strong. But she was out there in the ring, along with Billy and Chuck and Rico and a Justice of the Peace who looked about 100 years old. Pretty sure I've heard that voice somewhere before, but uh, I must just be imagining things. So, the WWE were as subtle as ever. Rico, of course, complained about everybody's clothes, because he's a stylist, right? And they come down to, it's raining men by the weather girls, because there are no stereotypes here. But are Billy and Chuck actually really going to go all the way? Are they? It's, they seem a little reluctant, it must be said. Rico is outright forcing one of them to say yes, but then... Here comes the Godfather, with his entourage, telling us seeing them going after some of his ladies. Apparently Chuck liked them large, which of course is a very relevant piece of information. Godfather gets shooed away, far too late in my opinion, and it looks like we might be back on track. But as soon as Billy is asked to say those final two magic words, it all falls apart, as you would have heard. It turns out that they're not really gay. Oh, they've got nothing against gay people, which of course makes everything okay. Now this was all a publicity stunt. WWE publicity stunt? Yeah, I know, I'm shocked too, but something as potentially serious as this, which has actually got you, whisper it, a little bit of goodwill from unexpected quarters, which I'll get to later, it's a publicity stunt. Ah yeah, WWE, a season premiere, because they actually think that season premieres matter in scripted pro wrestling entertainment. Yeah, because nobody actually gives a fuck about that, do they, Vince? Yeah, maybe one day. But anyway, the Justice of the Peace certainly cares. Their bond that Chuck and Billy have is sacred, and that will never change. Never change. It doesn't matter if it lasts 50 years, 16 months, or three minutes. Wait a minute. What? Did I just hear myself say three minutes? What the hell? And then out come Rosie and Jamal, who are now called Three Minute Warning. Brilliant name, by the way. And they lay waste to everybody. The supposedly happy couple. Well, almost everybody, because Rico manages to scarper. It turns out he was in on the scam too. And then, of course, Stephanie McMahon gets felt. And yes, 
It was all about the wedding just five minutes ago, but the season premiere segment has to end with Stephanie McMahon lying prone on the ground and the baby faces and the heels standing to her and the commentators asking what's going to happen and has Bischoff got one over on her and how on earth will Stephanie respond? I don't want to talk about Stephanie in the course of the next 10 minutes because this is not about her. Dan, I want to work backwards on this one because I want to talk about the laudable stuff first. So yeah. just for now, for the first couple of minutes, the Eric Bischoff reveal. Bonus to the makeup people. Yeah, that bit, really, really well done. Yeah, it, yeah as you say, we'll, we'll get into it sort of, the meat of it sort of late in a, in a moment, but just sort of purely what was on the screen and, and nothing sort of else was sort of around it. Yeah, the, the Bischoff reveal. Ex, ex, expertly done and sort of, sort of nice bit of timing from Eric, Eric there to, to with, the, with the delivery and the, and the reveal and and to be honest didn't didn't see the the Rico turn that was no, me neither that was sort of not nicely done and it's just and then yeah leading into the match which we'll talk about yet yeah, later uh, all good there we'll come back as they come back to that but yeah that the actual sort of that sort of part of the ceremony stuff, yeah, expert, expertly done. But um, as for the rest of it, yeah, we shall see. <laughs> oh, we're going to get there very, very shortly. It's just another tick in the box for Eric Bischoff. It's, I never had him down for having this amount of versatility. So other than the voice, which did crack a couple of times, and they pretty much had me. I thought it was just some old funny duddy they wheeled out to carry out <laughs> equal marriage. And, and just another WWE whacker over the head obvious joke with that. But no, it wasn't. It was actually Bischoff. And WWE production values, when they want them to be, are absolute sky high. And there has been talk, especially on SmackDown, a lot of people say it's for superior product in ring. I think they're probably right. But it's not bringing in the live crowds that Raw is. And their own budget is slightly down. And as far as I can tell, the other than the on-screen nonsense, Raw and SmackDown do have their own budgets. Well, I suppose Vince McMahon could slosh them around however he wants, so that's probably just really quite superficial, but we'll go with it for now. Uh, if they put 95% of their production budget into the makeup there for Eric Bischoff, I wouldn't be surprised. And I'm going to give them all the credit, whether it was 0%, 95%, 100%. It was brilliant. And I think it was something we needed here that, in addition to, oh my God, have they really just done that? And I think they were prepared for the backlash and as quickly as they possibly could, they tried to get everybody saying, oh bloody hell, that was Eric Bischoff, looked nothing like him, which they succeeded on, but they didn't succeed on anything else. So Dan, I've got a fair bit to say about this, so I'm going to give you just complete open forum on what we got in the previous 10 minutes, the presentation of the wedding, the WWE's handling of it, Wherever yeah. you want to pick up on this. I mean, you said it. Sort of, you picked it up when you were sort of doing the original recap when um, Chuck said this was just a publicity stunt that went out of hand. This is, that that was our imitating life. That exactly what this was. It was just them sort of view grabbing or eyes on the prize. Like as you say, they've they have different budgets and tomorrow's not getting the viewers. It or the, the crowd or whatever it, it probably should, presuming, admittedly, I, I, I'm with you, I think SmackDown's probably the best, better in-ring product now. That I think 
we have wrestling is sports entertainment, and we we now do have a sports show in SmackDown and an entertainment show in Raw. I think they we're starting to see that sort of divide yeah. sort of coming through now. We've been in this brand split for a couple of a few months now, but um, but yeah, this was a, a publicity stunt that yeah, it just it it sat very wrong, poorly with me, and um, I I I think there's a Probably you've got um, LGBT sort of communities reaching out. Um, it's seen some, beforehand it was seen as something positive that they're sort of spotlighting um, a same-sex couple, and this is this is considering what we were getting on on Raw on the other side, and we'll come to that. Oh, we will later as well. But um, yeah, I mean. Up, up until the the point of execution, it did. I mean, I, I didn't believe that Billy and Chuck were a, no. a same-sex couple at all. No, that's fair. That's um, but um, if that was how they're going to portray it, and if that was if that was the avenue they were going to go down, then then the, the sort of plaudits that WWE could reap from it could be deserved. Like they're actually doing this, actually going in spotlight. Uh, same-sex couple on not just national but global television then all power to them and, and yeah it probably should have been done with a cup to uh, two people who actually were that of that sexual orientation but mm-hmm. if this is the step you're going to take to introduce it then so be it but no they just decided to it was literally just a look at what we, look what we can do we can make you think we're going to do this pull the rug from you and it's, it was just another angle to basically switch Billy and Chuck and keep Rico's uh, heel and make Bischoff even more well this past month I've basically just redubbed him from his WWE moniker of Easy E to Sleazy E because he's just, he's just taking it to another level now with with this and just the, and what and HLA and stuff that we'll get into done later on and stuff but um, yeah it was just it, 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 it was just yeah a bad taste in in, in the mouth certainly, but at at the time, at that, that time you're right. People were just talking about oh my god that was Eric Bischoff and that and that was the, that that became, that was the headline that everyone was taking away from it. And it it's taken sort of a few days or so to then look under the headline, actually read the read the full story, and then yeah this is this is where I'm at now. It's like there's 101 ways you can you could do this to if you want to carry on this Raw versus SmackDown thing, you could just simply have Rico turn on Billy and Tucker and, or whatever, and and at, at the pay per view or something. If, it, if that's what the ultimate game goal was, yeah. with the same, yeah, the, the stipulation involved in that match is is what it is, and we'll come to that. But if that was the, that's the match of the pay per view, and you could have we could go in as their as their manager or, or consultant stylist, however they're booking it, and then have him turn at the pay per view and reveal and reveal that he just he just basically sort of strung them along and gave them a false sense of confidence or whatever. And yeah, really he was just feeding um, three minute warning and Bischoff basically Billy and Tuck's playbook, so that's why they won or whatever. As we've seen years ago with when Jimmy Hart was set sort of 
changing tag teams and switching what he meant what with money ink and sold off nasty boys tag uh, title reign or was it natural disasters one of the two but that sort of similar thing basically trading one tag team for another and that's if that's what you wanted to do that's how you do it you don't um basically publicity stunt it which is what they've done yeah, try telling Vince McMahon not to publicity stunt something again and see how yeah so of course yeah uh, <laughs> I took about tilting at windmills. I'm going to give him the benefit of what little doubt there is on this one. I do not believe that Vince McMahon is prejudiced against LGBT people. In the same way, I don't believe he is prejudiced against people of colour. I genuinely do not believe that. However, and it's a massive, monumental great however, <laughs> I hope it's smacking yeah. you all around the face right now. I believe he thinks that LGBT people are at best, okay, at best, they are a febrile target for comedy, or at worst, and this is where the lines get very blurred indeed, he sees it as a weakness that deserves to be mocked. And we all know how much Vince McMahon hates what he perceives to be weaknesses. Right? This is a person who thinks that sneezing is one of the great sins of our time for example right so again he has got form on this he's from a different time to make that appalling excuse so he's going to go to this well he's done it before okay having said all of that uh, a member of the gay and lesbian alliance against defamation uh, by the name of scott seoman he and his and his organisation have been generally rather pleased with the way that Billy and Chuck have been portrayed leading up to the wedding. Uh, they, they even brought up people like Lenny and Lodi and WCW and all of that appalling nonsense. And you know, the presentation is far superior to that, which it had been. And we must put that on the record. You know, that's a positive for the WWE, if I lock up my judgment. To the extent where before the wedding, G-L-A-A-D, GLAD, actually sent them a wedding gift. Uh, a gravy boat, I believe it was, which is really rather lovely. Now, the only thing they can be criticised for is not knowing that weddings don't really happen in pro wrestling. And I once again, Eric is screaming at his podcast provider, Uncle Alma, Uncle Alma, Uncle Alma, like he does so often. Yes, Uncle Alma was married. And yes, SummerSlam 91 went off okay for a little while. Until <laughs> uh, <laughs> until the party yeah. and um, Savage was, was disappointed he got a blender. It's just that yeah, one of the one of the presents wasn't a blender. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, we got a blender. If only it ended there. So that's the only thing you can throw at GLADD. And why even should you? Okay, they don't know how pro wrestling stories work. Well, I've got news for you. They've got more important things to worry themselves about. So some of the criticism I've seen of, seen of them has been absolutely deplorable and disgusting. We know that SmackDown is recorded on the Tuesday and airs in the States for the first time on a Thursday over here in the UK on a Saturday. So the show is already in the can at this point when Scott Sionin of GLAD spoke to Vince McMahon on the phone. And Vince McMahon told him, and I quote, the marriage goes off respectfully. Okay. Outright lying to their face. Right? The marriage went off respectfully knowing full well what happened. Did it not dawn on him then? Could he not have told them? It was the first thing that they asked on the phone. Now, did the, was the wedding presented correctly? And Vince McMahon said yes. 
And it wasn't. It wasn't at all. Gladwood had every right to haul Vince McMahon over the coals for this one. But they've been relatively sanguine about this. And I quote, They got what they wanted, attention and publicity, and Glad helped out. Do I feel used? Well, even though Billy and Chuck's characters are allegedly straight, it brought visibility to the topic. For two days, it was the main topic in entertainment, talked about in the school playground, at the bus, at work. That's good. Cool. This is one classy person we're talking about here, this Scott Siomi. If Billy said, I can't marry you because I'm in love with The Rock and I'm living with him, I believe the crowd would have cheered. If Chuck would have said that after their honeymoon, he wanted to adopt two Romanian babies, the crowd would have cheered. The wrestling crowd loves outrageousness. So maybe this guy, you know, he does understand pro wrestling after all. Two ends of the scale. Yeah, because I need to quote Phil Mushnick. I know I have to. And on this occasion, I'm going to come down on the WWE side. And it's not often I say that. Here's Phil Mushnick being Phil Mushnick in the New York Post. Of course, the angle proved to be a vulgar, hateful mocking of gays. And the kids in the live audience and perhaps at home were thoroughly delighted. And that is just not true. All my problems with the presentation of this, and believe me, they're legion. It was not mocking homosexuality. No, it, okay? it, it wasn't. It wasn't sort of anti-gay in, in any way. It was. It wasn't like that. It wasn't. I mean, you, you can't accuse the three-minute three-minute warning attacking Billy and Chuck as, as, as gay bashing. It, no, it, uh, very it, important. It wasn't that. They weren't being very up because because they were quote because they were a same-sex couple. They're being up because they because they're arseholes. <laughs> Correct. Absolutely. Yes. And this is where the Vince, this is where it gets an issue for Vince McMahon, because on this one, I'm going to defend him. Because again, I don't believe he <laughs> yeah. believes that about gay people. And this was not presented as a vulgar hateful mocking of gays. It wasn't. But the two massive issues with this, which my my problems and probably the case with a lot of um, young LGBT people are watching this as well. Problem number one, using it as a publicity stunt. Well, how do you think gay people feel about that? It's just falling into the terrible stereotype that um, LGBT people are doing this just to be fashionable or, or to get famous or to be noticed, which is disgraceful. Now, that's an incredibly outmoded view. It was never true in the first place. And secondly, and this wasn't as bad as it was with Goldust six years ago, but I alluded to it earlier, Dan, that Billy and Chuck are now, are now baby faces. Now that we know that they're not gay, it's okay to cheer them. Again, this, it, this represents progress of a fashion from six years ago, where Goldust outright turned babyface by telling Jerry Lawler that he wasn't gay. And go back and watch the footage from Raw December 96. That is exactly what happened. Now, at least we've moved on from that. But <laughs> Billy Gunn and Chuck Palumbo didn't really do anything to show they were virtuous they were virtuous characters after this, which, of course, they could have done. Not that they weren't beforehand or potentially weren't beforehand. It's just accepted. They showed up on Raw the next week, uh, obviously dressed in jeans now because, oh, you don't do it going for any of that stuff. Made a few unfunny jokes about it. And now we can cheer them simply because um, they're straight after all. Yeah. Uh, Again, it's not, it's not as overt. I want to give WWE. It's not as overt and we're moving in the right direction, but very, very, very slowly. I say it is it is it moving in the right direction or is it just not going as far back? Well, yeah, yeah, I know. In a way, in a way. I don't, I'm, I'm trying, I'm, I don't want to make this WWE bash session. I'm no, no. To be as positive as I can. It, 
it's, it isn't good, but Mushnick's obviously sort of agenda raises its ugly head again, and it it's, doesn't, not, sorry, it's not that. That's that's just incorrect. If it was, but we'd say not. so on this programme, but it wasn't. But it, but it's not, but it's in no way no. a positive thing either. I think, there, like I say, mm-hmm. leading up to it, there was some positive sort of going on there, and they could have they could have left it and could have sort of just carried on as they were, sort of leave it, kind of leave it ambiguous. They didn't, I don't know, obviously the, the wedding then proceeded was for the angle, of course, but if they just left it as a ambiguous, like, and they could have said it doesn't matter who you love and whatever like that, they didn't yeah. need to come out or anything like that. They could have just said that no, that's fine. it's platonic or anything like that. It could have just kept it quite simple, but storylines being with, oh, we're in a, a cycle of monthly pay-per-view, so you have to get feuds going and things like that, and I get that and stuff, but I don't, you could have, this could have carried on and it could have just been something nice. Yeah. I know that's not what wrestling is, unfortunately, but <laughs> if only. there we go. <laughs> uh, just just think about that, I'm just going to leave this here, because we, well, I could talk, so we could talk about this topic for hours, and two years ago, we had Kurt Angle and Stephanie, all the stuff that was going on there. And it turned out in the end that they were just friends. You could argue that the story didn't go the place it should have done. But as it was presented to us on television, they were just friends. OK. You could have done something like that here. You know, you could have done. And I don't think that would have been especially problematic. I still think we would have, would have discussed a couple of bits and pieces about it negatively. But don't go ahead with the wedding. That's the thing. Don't go ahead with the wedding. Do not back yourself into that corner. I say, just leave it ambiguous. There's nothing wrong in art with a little bit. Will they, won't they? Or indeed a bit of, are they, aren't they? That's fine. You don't need to make it so obvious. But again, I'm talking about WWE where things are painted in such broad brushstrokes. But I think it's about time we moved on to the pay-per-view. We will be coming yeah. back to this topic and uh, not unconnected one. So we're not done on this one just yet. But Dan, why don't you give us the results for the Unforgiven pay-per-view that took place this month? Sure. So uh, opening up, they had an eight-man tag team match. Uh, Booker T, Bob Ray Dudley, Goldust and Kane defeated the Un-Americans, uh, Christian, Lance Storm, Test and William Regal. Chris Jericho successfully defended the Intercontinental Championship against Ric Flair. Eddie Guerrero defeating Edge. Uh, as previously mentioned, three-minute warning, uh, Tamara Rosie with Rico defeated Billy and Chuck. Um, Triple H defended the World Heavyweight Championship against uh, Rob Van Dam. Uh, Trish Stratus defeated Molly Holly to become the new uh, WWE Women's Champion. Uh, Chris Benoit defeated Kurt Angle. And in main event, Brock Lesnar and The Undertaker went to a double disqualification in the WWE Championship match. Dan, your opening <laughs> thoughts on... <laughs> I give myself away, don't I? Uh, ever the man of mystery. Dan, your opening thoughts on Unforgiven 2002. Uh, opening thoughts? Um, I, I, quite, I, I quite enjoyed it, to be fair. I, I, I think it was, it was, it was good. There was um, plenty, plenty of good action sort of through it. Yeah, a couple of, <laughs> couple of endings probably didn't go as they should, much to your... Um, audible reaction at the end of the reading of the results there um but I, overall um yeah i enjoyed it i it's something it's probably one i could, I could watch again i think it, it, not not sort of massively sort of ultra sort of recommendation of you have to actually see this but it was it's good i i think it's quite a good one 
yeah, this was a good B-level pay-per-view. And if it sounds yeah. like I'm damning it with faint praise there, it's because, well, I am rumbled. But this was a B-level pay-per-view. But it was a good one. And I'm OK with that. Most definitely not without its problems. And I think I've already alluded to both of the main problems already. But there's some good stuff here. And I think we're going to start with it. Let's go in. But we do get a curious moment to start with when JR states that the crowd are fashionably late, which is definitely one from the Bobby Heenan WrestleMania 8 playbook. After that, we are into our opening contest, pitting the un-Americans of Lovestorm, Christian Test and William Regal against Booker T, Goldust, Bud Ray and Kane. It should also be noted that they seem to be going with some sort of working man gimmick with Bubba. We do know Rita McNeil's Canadian, right? Opening eight-man tag then. Booker and Goldie fight over who gets to start, and the latter wins that battle as he locks up with Christian. Flying butt bump, thanks in your house video game, scores our first near fall, then he sees the Lance as well. Bubba in as we get a stereo flip flop and flies, so that's why he started doing it. Lance then traps him in the corner though. Note, I can't type Lance without capitalising the A too. Although of course that time, I did. Ah, the loneliness of the long distance play-by-play writer. Big Regal sucks chance, and you know he loves that, as Christian sorts out Goldust on the outside. Tested next as Goldie takes the heat, and what a fine job of it he does. He's on top form at the moment. Nice flying clothesline allows him to bring Booker back in, and he sees off all bar test. And then him as well, as soon as I type that. Regal breaks up the pin. Bubba with a hard slam to Regal, and then he and Booker share a tender what's-up moment. I don't need to tell you how well our boy sells that. And now it's time for Booker to get the tables. I did like one on Raw a few weeks ago in a singles match. Bubba told himself to get them. Sadly, they get cut off, but the fans still want them. At least this time, though, they waited for the bell to stop reverberating before chanting it. A little bit of a match broke up first. Lovely overhead suplex by Real gets two on Booker, and he tags Christian back in. Was it really a year ago he turned heel, by the way? Blimey. He grinds on a headlock as the fans rally up T, but after one quick knee to the happy taxi falls like anyone else. Quick roll up for two, but a nice spine buster by Booker. Kane in now for the first time in the match, I think. And then he does the Kane thing to everyone, which I'm still just about okay with. It's Bonzo Gonzo for a while until Kane and Test fight over their finisher. Test wins that battle, but no pinfall. He instead takes an axe kick. He instead takes an axe kick from Booker. <laughs> Might be something else. And there's just been a Rooney as JR makes a no doubt accidental far show reference. Do you want it, sir? Really? Kane gets low blown and then we honestly go back and listen. Kane gets low blown and wiped out by a kick from Storm, but the big fella is out before the three. Booker misses another kick and gets dumped out by Christian, walks right into a bubble bomb, same as it ever was, before he then takes shattered dreams. And to think it's his face that Vince wants to cover up. Dear dear dear. Flying kick from Kane, a bit of choke slam to Storm, stops Regal interfering before returning to the cover and then getting the Duke. The faces, well that is definitely what they are, posed with old glory to finish. Dan, I typed many more notes in there than I was expecting before this match, but that should tell you just how all action it was. Yeah, um, good way to good way to open a pay per view. Have a all action multi man match. I mean, um, if this if this was a couple of years ago or more before years ago, and it was WCW, <coughs> we'd have a cruiserweight match like in a similar sort of uh, spot, like fast paced and like that. These aren't cruiserweights, but still. Well, dance Christian maybe, but um, still, still fast paced and kind of all action. So that's exactly what you want to, to open up, and it, it went what ten minutes, so didn't overstay its welcome, which some multi-man matches can do because everyone has to get everything in. But they were quick enough and got it and got through it really well. And um, yeah, 
I mean, we're never going to get rid of the um, patriot, patriotic gimmicks from WWE. Vince is just that's the way he's built. So having the un-Americans versus the yeah, the, basically the patriot, patriotic side. I'm surprised they won't sort of dressed in red, white, and blue. Like, I, I don't want to see Kane in stars and stripes, but I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if it happened. Um, so glad we didn't get that. It wasn't too sort of America versus the world, but um, but yeah, overall all um, all good, and um, yeah, wouldn't mind seeing seeing more sort of it can continue. I mean, we're two months away from Survivor Series. Wouldn't be surprised if we see the Un Americans versus a similar type team. Then the Un Americans dropped the tag belts the next day on Raw, and then there was a little segment with Regal telling them that they needed to regroup and rather brilliantly telling the coach to piss off, which I really quite enjoyed. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure where the Un-Americans are going. And it must be said that three of their number are getting increasingly uncomfortable with all of this. It's been noted that the heat they're getting is the wrong sort oh, okay. of heat, and they're really starting to panic. Regal, on the other hand, could give a toss, mate. Loves it. Oh, All, all part yeah, of the job. Boom me all your fucking life. When you, when, you <laughs> when you said the three, my thought was, well, Regal's not, Regal doesn't care. He... This is this is him living his best life, if you will. Really good fun. They packed a fucking ton into only eight and a half minutes. I thought Kane was a rather odd fit, but you know, Dan, as you did, but let's know your history and all that. The Undertaker wore the Stars and Stripes leading up to Survivor Series 1993. You know, he had the old True. style Betsy Ross flag. Second time in three months I mentioned her on the podcast, so you know I'm very inclusive <laughs> after all. Uh, it's still a little bit of a stretch, I must admit. I think Kane is the one getting the push out of it, if I've read the runes correctly. Just say we're yeah. recording this shortly before uh, the final roar of the month. I think Kane's going to be in a rather high-profile position on that. Talk of him getting a pay-per-view match against one of the world champions, and judging by the show he's on, I think I know who that's going to be next month. We'll watch out for that. But everybody gave a really good account of themselves here. I'm not sure where the Un-Americans go. Maybe the three of them have got a point and this one has run its course. I mean, after you try to burn the American flag twice in one week, your bolt is probably shot, in all honesty. But we will see. I'd like to keep them together as some sort of heel group. I'm especially pleased that Lance Storm's getting something to sink his teeth into. Said that last month. Hopefully, I'll be saying it for many more ones to come. But a very strong opener, a very wise choice of opener. And I think it was the start we needed. Some fine stuff here. Stephanie gives Billy and Chuck a pep talk. It's not about her. <coughs> it's about SmackDown. Straight face, carry on. <laughs> Ever the pro. However, I will give her this. She, she says, not about her, it's about SmackDown. She also says, it's about pride, which I hope was a, was a positive Freudian slip. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow I doubt it, but I'm going to give that one to her. Uh, next up, IC champion Y2J versus Ric Flair. And in the immortal words of Nelson Muntz, I can think of at least two things wrong with that title. At least on the review copy I have, Flair comes out to the rubbish version of his music. Mm-hmm. I said it again. Early grapple goes nowhere until they quickly exchange slaps. Jericho goes up early but gets caught in the abdomen, and we are into the chops already. I typed that last month, too. That weird middle rope dropkick thing of Jericho's quickly gets the champ back on track, and then a slightly more conventional one into the ring gets a two count. Belt signed by Y2J, and I wonder which one he means. He then clamps on the shades of Wilbur Schneider, and I don't think he has that held applied properly, Jess. Hip toss out by Flair. More blasted chops, but at least this time he pulls off the Flair flip. Didn't do that last month. Whip to the steps and then quickly back in. We get the rolling knee, including one from off the ropes, but a two count only. 
Swift grind of the knee, and then he calls for the figure of four, but Jericho reverses to a cradle for a near four. He misses the lion salt, and he lands rather oddly. He tries to tell Flair and Robinson that he's hurt, and the crowd aren't too sure how to react as of yet, especially as Robinson is signalling for the trainer. Oh, but now they know how to react, as Y2J recovers extremely quickly, slaps the walls on, and that'll do that. Here's Lola on commentary. Flair should be ashamed of himself. Dan, this one becomes a little bit more important later on in the night, so we'll just talk about the match for now. Uh, if you really wanted yeah, to be charitable, yeah, you could say that it was poor because of the storyline coming down the pipe, but I'm not going to be charitable. Yeah, the, the, there's nothing sort of memorable sort of from this. It, it was a, it was a, I could come to it, it was kind of a, a means to, to an end. I mean, and when we come, when we sort of circle back to this, um, I did like the ending because of how, where it leads. But the six minutes before that were just six minutes of wrestling. That's I had, yeah. I know you should be talk, talking about the match and reviewing it and stuff, but there really wasn't much for me to sort of no. talk about. You covered the moves, and that's what we saw. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what it was. It was just a a vehicle to get to us, to get to where we get to later. Um, which, which I say, I, I enjoyed the ending because of where we get to, but yeah, the match itself, yeah, not bad for me. Not a bad one. Just, just not out. Just nothing from it, really. Uh, I got a bit of a kicking last month for my sole dislike on the panel of the Jericho Flair match at SummerSlam. So I'm glad you're a bit close to me here. For the match on Unforgiven. I wouldn't call that a bad match. I wouldn't call the SummerSlam one a bad match. But this exposes Jericho. And I don't like saying that because I want to support Jericho on this podcast. There are people who do to the hilt and there are people who take the opposite opinion. I want to be in the former camp, but I'm not seeing what a lot of his supporters see. He's not very good at holding matches together. And I think when you're in there with 53-year-old Ric Flair, even if it's just six minutes... Now, that's a prerequisite. Now, if you can't marshal the match, then you're just relying on the, the Flair signature spots. And I don't think that's enough anymore. It is for most people. I'm probably in the minority, but it's not enough for me. That's and I think that's what I do think that's why Jericho is where he is, intercontinental champion level. I don't know where he was at the start of the year, but we all knew he was a placeholder champion. And unless something changes to the contrary, I think we're going to be talking about Jericho at this level, second from the bottom pay-per-view this time next year, and possibly a few more years down the line as well. Well, yeah, the, the, I think the, the best that we'll... we'll uh, the highest he'll go will be um, um, main event of the month on a B-level pay-per-view. If he's, Absolutely. He, if he's facing, if he's a facer and then he's facing the heel champion or, or vice versa, he'll just be that month's challenger, and then He'll go up and then come back down and, mm-hmm. I don't know, do some tag work, maybe even win an Intercontinental title again, something like that. But, yeah, that, that's that's where I see him now. He He's the Intercontinental champion who might drop the belt, go up briefly, like, in this time of year when when no, when no it's not running towards WrestleMania or, or anything like that. It's just, yeah. Man of the month type thing, and then that's him done again. 
Dan Welling will get his right to reply very, very soon. <laughs> <laughs> you know he's going to take the chance. Bischoff chats with Rosie and Jamal, who, as I said earlier, are now called Three Minute Warning. God, that name is good. They are representing Raw and Eric Bischoff, and Rico will be in their corner. This match really is getting a lot of build, isn't it? Shaq is in the front row and gets the reaction you would expect. Eddie Guerrero versus Tess. Uh, versus, I actually wrote Test. I've only just seen that. Eddie Guerrero versus Test is our third match. I'll throw back to WrestleMania I mean, 17. Blonde Canadian. I mean, <laughs> there's, there's four of them, but. <laughs> so you've you got your pick. Test and Edge. Like I might have my issues with Edge, but that's pushing it a little bit too far, I think. Sorry, Adam, if you're listening. Eddie Guerrero <laughs> versus Edge is our third match. I'm keeping all that in as we switch to Michael Cole and Taz for commentary. Ever since Lacey compared Edge's music to Vic Reeves' version of Get Down, I can't unhear it. Edge is ready to start right out of the traps, but Eddie just waits outside. Good stuff. Edge still gets off a backdrop, though, as Cole reminds me, and he had to, that Edge is a four-time Intercontinental Champion. And really, that's part of the problem. Nice power slam, though, for a sharp two count and a good vertical suplex, too. But this is one of my problems with Edge. I'm still not sure why he's doing these moves. Elbow by Eddie turns the momentum and he gets off a choice tornado DDT. Hang that baby in the Louvre. Snap suplex by Eddie and he gets a near fall of his own. And then he cranks on a headlock using his left leg for extra leverage. Edge battles out with knees to the forehead, but is easy prey for a side suplex. The story is the DDT is knocked and goofy, and I think they're telling it the right way. A big Eddie sucks chant as another headlock from hell goes on. Please don't call that a rest hold now. He jukes and jives and will not allow Edge to even get to his feet. He merely walks away and they're down for a while until Edge misses a blind charge and eats the buckle. Ah, Ken Patera would be proud. But unlike old Creamy Legs, that doesn't mean the end of the match just yet, though, as Eddie wrenches Edge's head against the ropes. Great call from Cole, as he says from Eddie, there is no wasted motion. An ever clearer Eddie chant can now be heard as Edge goes upstairs to miss a missile dropkick. Eddie removes the turnbuckle pad but gets back into it himself. Edge looks to set up a superplex, but Guerrero bangs Edge's head into the exposed buckle. And quick as a flash, Eddie with an outstanding flip power bomb, which ends with Edge landing with an audible splat. And he is done. But Eddie still grabs the tights on the cover anyway, just because he can. Dan. I, I like this. I think this was good. This is, um, for me, it's a bit like um, the teacher and the pupil. Eddie's clearly the, the, the master and knows his way around being a, a the sort of yeah, well, I'll go with upper mid level sort of um, singles competitor, and Edge is that's where he's that's where they want him to be. So it makes sense to put him with the with the one person you want to be learning a lot of lot from. Sorry. Um, yep. Um, decent action th- throughout. Um, I I kind of agree with you with Edge and, and some of his move sets a little bit mismatched and so he doesn't quite fit someone of of, of, of his build and he's like like a spear from some from some med does it's not quite it's not like we've talked as we've mentioned before it's not quite rhino is he i mean i don't see how you'd say especially with someone like eddie who's not as small as he used to be he's now he's markedly a, a bigger guy so you want to have sort of a different moveset for someone like like edge but that being said, um, I can I can see where they see an edge. I think I think he's 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 coming along all, all right. I don't I don't think he'll be sort of near the top or anything like that. So he might be like mentally he's a four time intercontinental champion. I think that I think 
I think that's what I was blown was away by that. I would, I would never, I would never have said that. No, I mean, I mean, one of those was one day, of course. Um, True. His, his quick how so shot with 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 um, Jeff Jarrett, but even still, yeah. so saying a three time in the kind of champion still sounds a little bit sort of odd already. But um, but yeah, if that's I think when you think that's what's missing from SmackDown is that secondary title. We lost the European title back in July. Why wasn't that put on SmackDown as your... I know they've got the Cruiserweight title, but that's a division. That's not something that you can sort of dip in and out of. You have to be a certain weight to be in it type thing. That's a separate thing completely. If this match was for a European title, which was, and then the European title had been sort of somewhat elevated being as it's the now secondary title on its own show rather than being third or fourth on the list, depending on how you see the hardcore title, then there's something added you could add into this. And, I mean, not every match has to be for a title, but it would make sense for this to be for one, in a way. People are probably bored of hearing me praise Eddie Guerrero, but I'm not bored of it, of course I'm not. He was sensational in this match. Does everything he does mean something? And it looks amazing which is not always the easiest combination. It's difficult to get that right, especially in the WWE, where the former is often more important than the latter. But I still feel that Eddie Guerrero is wrestling in these matches when he's yanking on a headlock and he's using his left leg for extra extra leverage or that huge powerbomb at the end. He made sure Edge's head hit the mat to help keep him down. Just want to jump ahead very, very briefly to a match these two had on SmackDown a few days afterwards, built as a no disqualification match to end the feud. A match Edge won, incidentally. And I've watched this match twice. I was stunned when I first watched this match. I thought it was outstanding for free television. I still do, to some degree. I mean, they were taking incredible risks yes. in this match. They were doing crazy shit to each other. Whacking each other with chairs and uh, the execution... DDT off the rope and the ladder. It was extraordinary stuff and they were busted up and Eddie got a standing ovation when he got to his feet and rightly so. Again, I thought, yeah, this was an excellent match, but it was an excellent match because it was a no disqualification match with Edge in it. Yeah. It's as if they thought it's not really happening for him in the ring at the moment. So I'll tell you what, let's give him 15 minutes with one of our very best workers where he can just fall off of things for a bit. That'll fool them. The fact that He's having, he's kind of leaning, or they're leaning on added bells and whistles to get him to mm-hmm. still, even nowhere, as you say, quite already removed from the TLC area. That match on SmackDown was, you could, it, again, going back to the European title thing, if if on the pay per view or whatever on SmackDown they did that match as a TLC match for the European title, that would have. Mm-hmm. That would sort of marry up quite well. It would, as you say, it would support Ed in doing. He's not quite there in a normal singles match, and Eddie would just be Eddie, basically. I mean, that's just the way to to put it. He, he would. I mean, we've seen him in in ladder matches before with with RVD and with um, Six, of course, and a few years ago now, but. Um, yeah, that that would have worked. It would have probably been better than what we what we got at, at the pay per view. Not to say that, that we, what we got at the pay per view was bad. It was really really good. Really enjoyed it. 
but yeah, we could have easily added another point or two to the rating on the on the match mm. if if that was where how they wanted to go. Because I think you'd have got more out of Ed from it. It wouldn't just be Eddie working around Ed. It's not that he was Ed was terrible, but you know what I mean. I criticise him every month, but he's not a terrible wrestler. Far, far from it. But he's also quite a long way away from where, in fairness to him, I think he wants to be in the ring. Yeah. Definitely where a lot of other people want him to be. And he's not shaking off that just the spot monkey stigma. I think that's unfair. I don't think he is just the spot monkey. But the stench, if that's the right word, is he hasn't washed it off yet. And I think it's going to take more than a splash of brute to get rid of it. He's still a work in progress. And I think we've been saying that for just a little too long now. A slow burner, which doesn't, mm-hmm. and it doesn't too help in a, when we've got a world a WWE champion who's very much the opposite. <laughs> Triple H walks in on RVD and Flair. The champion suggests that Van Damme has no passion or desire, and as such, there is no way he will win the belt tonight. Flair used to have said passion and desire, apparently, but now he doesn't have a damn thing. As such, it is appropriate that RVD is getting ready for his match with a loser like Flair. RVD, though, would rather associate himself with a loser like Flair than an alleged winner like you any day. Triple H scoffs and walks off. Hmm. Okay, okay. Billy and Chuck versus Rosie and Jamal. I am not going to do play-by-play for this one, as I've said all about Billy and Chuck that I could ever need to, and the match itself obviously plays second fiddle to what will Stephanie do, because of course it does. So in short then, all I have to report is, you still can't headbutt Samoans, 2002, and Jamal pins Billy after a Samoan drop. So as per the stipulation, Stephanie will have to partake in hot lesbian action, and I hear you cry, what the bloody hell is that? Some might say it's a bit self-explanatory, but in this context, you're quite right to ask. So, let's go back a little bit. So, Eric Bischoff, as is his wont, responded to the wedding ceremony on the on the following edition of Raw by saying he would trump a gay wedding by hosting hot lesbian action. Yes, two women were going to go at it in the middle of the ring. Jerry bloody Lawler would not shut up about it for the entire two hours. If you can bear it, go back and just listen to him for that. You're not going to be able to bear it, but I just want you to hear it, because if Lawler gets nominated for the Russo Award this year, his performance on that edition of Raw is why. Even by his standards, it was appalling. But anyway, we did eventually get two lesbians, and yes, they even had a Chiron that introduced them as the lesbians, a dressing room that called them the lesbians, coming out and getting down to a little bit of PG action until three-minute warning did their thing. Back to tonight, Bischoff tells his legions and their friends to go out on the town and use his name. I'm not sure that would even get into the dog and duck, to be honest. But he does <laughs> ask two of the ladies to stay behind, who, of course, are called Peaches and Cream. It's highbrow stuff, this. Just before the main event, so we're jumping ahead again here, we get a sneak preview out in the ring, but then Bischoff changes his mind. He brings out Stephanie for her supposed forfeit, and in words, Bischoff is no stranger to, soon says, to hell with the foreplay. <laughs> I'm allowed a cheap shot like that, I think. But just as the menage a trois is about to begin, two of the ladies are excused. But not Stephanie. Because she has to kiss the, and I quote, ugliest, fattest, most physically repulsive lesbo he could find. It is, of course, very obviously Rikishi, 
in a disguise even David Blunkett wouldn't be fooled by. And yes, I've cho- and yes, I chose that reference advisedly for at least two reasons. But Bischoff has to be, though. Steph goes for it, nevertheless, and then Rikishi gives Bischoff the usual. Both commentary teams ensure we know that Stephanie was the smartest of them all. But we know. And they know we know. Not that that will ever stop them. Dan, so here we go again. Just I called this tawdry bollocks just now, giving it far too much praise. I'm going to let you have your word on this and I'm going to move on because it's just my head is literally my head in hands talking about this. Well, I just want to say this now. This is the other end of the Vince McMahon spectrum for how he handles LGBT people, right? Believing that lesbians are at the very, very least lesbianism only really exists for the benefit of male titillation. Why betide these people might love each other, want to spend their lives together. And I know I'm, I'm not expecting treatises and queer theory here, right? No, this is a book by Vince McMahon, not Jean Genet. But, <laughs> but Dan, I'm going to hand over to you one more time. And the last time, before we we'll never talk about this again until December. <laughs> yeah, and it, believe it, me, we'll talk about it then. And, um, I'll make sure of it. And that's the thing, isn't it? You, it, 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 it's, it's, it's not, it's not lesbianism. It's not lesbianism. It's girl on girl action. That's, mm-hmm. that's what this is. That's absolutely. It, it's. It's the it's the late night Channel Five, what um, Red Shoe Diaries type, or or further on type thing again. It's the again the it's a publicity stunt that got out of hand mm-hmm. again, but on but in a different way. And um, yeah, the the bring up the trope, but the. Um, I don't know how 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 to put this. Um, the more masculine or yeah, uh, lesbian is not the right quote unquote lesbian for entertainment, so we should mock them. Exactly. Is just it's just disgusting. Yeah. To be honest. Um. I think nobody's really talking about this. I think now you've just said that. I think this might be worse than the Billy and Chuck stuff. Oh, probably no, it's, by quite, it, probably by it, quite it, some it, way. It, it, it's so it so is because uh, as we as we as we talked about earlier, it, Billy and Chuck was was ex, kind of exploitative of that of that sort of of the the, the same sex sort of marriage type thing, but it wasn't gay bashing. It wasn't that this and that. Where this is. This is just mocking lesbianism, isn't it? Yeah. It's it's as you said, it's 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 taking it for the for the male attention that 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 it's yeah. I have many things. I probably could say many things, but I don't. But I'm kind of almost a loss for words in a way. No, absolutely. Who can blame you? <laughs> You've done a sterling job. And um, yeah, watching the. Watching the pay per view, it was it was a combination of um, Jerry Lawler being the worst, as you pointed out. He was fucking and and then also um, the other the other three commentators like feeling sorry for Stephanie for having to demean herself to be Mm -hmm. 
dare to kiss a woman. That is a great point. The way they were saying it, it was like, oh my God, could you believe she has to do this? It's like, yeah, don't, don't, yeah, don't forget. Remember, I mean, remember, it was supposedly yeah, a, for, like, a forfeit. Supposedly a yeah, forfeit. Like, Let's just think about that. It's seen as like the worst thing in the world that Stephanie oh. has to do. Like, poor, like, you have to remember, I mean, I don't know, but um, this isn't, even if it was the case, it's still wrong, but this isn't the sweet Stephanie from 99 before she met Hunter type Stephanie. This is, well, this is, and this is a different Stephanie as well. So, I mean, I don't know her personal life really outside of what we read in, in terms of her and her and Hunter and, and stuff. But the woman went to university. I mean, yeah, it's it's a it's a trope and it's things and stuff like that. She may have had yeah, there's been experiences we don't know. Mm-hmm. So I mean, the, the possibly why, but but yeah, this is this is again to all possibly sort of fulfilling a man fantasy that he likes to see his own daughter. Oh, yeah, I I really think we should stop it there. Because you're because you're probably completely bloody right. <laughs> but yeah, just for fuck's sake. <laughs> yeah, for, 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 for fuck's sake. Basically. There we go. For fuck's sake. There you go. Uh, I'm ha- renamed the Russ. The Russo Award is perfectly named, but the for fuck's sake award. If we ever did change it, I'd be coming very close to it. Yeah. <laughs> All I will say on this now, for now, whatever mark I give the Unforgiven 2002 pay per view when we sum it up in a few minutes' time, I'm knocking one mark off because of this. Maybe yep. even two. There we go. So we'll do, but let's see what a world headweight title might actually keep the score up between RVD and Triple H. You'll notice I delivered that without too much fanfare. But if you've seen the fairly standard video package that precedes the match, you'll understand why. Let's see if the contest itself could rise above the mundane. Quick side headlock takeover by Van Damme. Nice counter on the map by Triple H. No good vice versa there. Cool sequence, which I wasn't expecting. A lot of standoffs in the early going here as we now exchange a hammerlock or two. The crowd didn't come here for this, which is a shame because it's genuinely impressive stuff from both men. Slaps to Triple H's nose should do it. And without recourse to the script, I cannot say for certain whether or not RVD was aiming for his ankles. Great arm drag takedown by... I just can't help myself. Great arm drag takedown by Van Damme, and he has come to work today. Helmsley takes a breather for a bit, allowing Rob to do his own water spit. His clenching of the muscles is especially amusing. And I tell you what, that one gets the nostrils flaring. But RVD is ready for it and keeps things on the ground. Me likey this. Nice sunset flip out of the corner by Van Damme for two. And then the steamboat flare backslide spot. Take a drink. And still we persist with the side headlock, which sadly gets one or two boos, but still only one or two. Big side kick to the face and Triple H spills outside. RVD tries a somersault plancher, but of course Triple H is smarter than everybody else in wrestling history and just walks out of the way. Hunter is now in control and sends Rob hard to the steps. Just a quick general thought. Triple H, for my money, works about 20% slower than he did pre-quad tear. But in a match like this, I think it might be a positive. But definitely isn't always. Anyway, big neck snap gets a two for the world champ, followed by Van Damme snatching an O'Connor roll for his own two. Neck breaker by the game for two, and now it's starting to pick up a bit. Helmsley presses back down an A for the jumping knee thing and another near fall there. <laughs> oh, I played that game so many times. He goes up to the top rope and steals Van Damme's taunts. And as that has used up his special meter, play that game a lot too, he has to resort to it. He has to resort to a sleeper as opposed to a pedigree. Misspent youth, I think, is the expression. He has won matches with this recently, though, the sleeper, but not tonight, as Van Damme sends him off and unleashes a spinning heel kick. A double down gives us an eight count, and now they just straight fists for a bit. RVD wins. 
Dragon screw leg whip and a drop kick, and the crowd are starting to feel this one. And Rolling Thunder gets a close two. Monkey flip and a side kick keep the fires burning. Comsley escapes, but this time RVD nails him with a dive over the ropes. Good storytelling. Big side kick. Oh, we're not there yet. Hunter's out at 2.8. And then the ref gets bumped, and the crowd groan loudly at that one, as like the best of us. Now they know the fix is in. It's just a matter of how it manifests itself. Pedigree is blocked into a slingshot. We do see the five-star, but we only get the visual pin. It's still one for the scrapbook. Hunter recovers rather quickly, suspiciously so, and nails a low blow. He goes for the sledgehammer, but Van Damme blocks with a spinning kick. Both men down again, and what the blazes is he doing here? Mr. Flair, are you out of bed again? He grabs Sledgy and teases hitting Triple H, so of course he hits RVD with it instead. Hunter feigns surprise before going for and hitting the pedigree. Flair throws the ref back in, and after a slow three count, Hunter Hurst Helmsley retains the world heavyweight title. Flair then presents the belt to Triple H as Lawler utters the dread words, Ric Flair has come to his senses. He realises who the true champion is. Don't say it. Don't say it. Just hand over to Dan. Just hand over to Dan. Dan. <laughs> come, in, come in quickly. You need to. Yep. Okay. So <laughs> quickly jumping in there before before he explodes. <laughs> um, I thought this was a, a decent match. I mean, you've got two guys who know their way all the way around the ring and back again. Um, giving us a good sort of nice sort of technical almost. Almost dare I say Triple H's attempt at a Harley Race sort of NWA type match. I mean, he has got a big gold belt, so he may as well carry on his his impersonation of, of Race slash Flair. And yeah, I, I, I didn't I didn't mind it at all. I think it was it was good. It wasn't amazing or special. I thought we didn't see anything sort of that we weren't used to seeing from from both men. I, I think. Um, it was good. I, I really, mean, I, I never for once believed that RVD was going to win. I think that always takes away a little bit from a match when there's, when you kind of know the, the result, and it was always going to be Triple H winning because he's meaning to, he's literally only just been given the belt. So I mean, he wasn't going to drop it on, on defense number one, really, was he? But um, and then yeah, when when um, Flair came out. The writing was was on the wall there. I, I, there's no way that Flair was going to come out and not just help RVD win. It was always going to be a matter of time before Flair was going to become Flair again. And yeah, this this is this is it. And then as we mentioned earlier, it was alluded to in the in the um, match with Jericho that um, Flair got out outdone in terms of being the dirtiest player in the game. I think that was, I guess, supposed to be the the, the seed or the the penny dropping of, okay, I'm no longer the man anymore. Triple H is. I need to ensure he's now the champion, which is, I guess, how they're going to play this going forward, that Blair is now the sort of mentor of, of Triple H and he will ensure... He will ensure uh, he's the champion, as we as we had previously with um, someone like Harley Race and Vader in WCW back in, mm. or Harley Race and Luger even in '91. Yeah, you've got almost almost visually correct in that way. 
a big a big muscle six footer with with the NW ex NWA world champion in, in, by his side. I that's just dawned to me now. But there we go. <laughs> Yeah, um, a, lot, a, lot, a lot of thinking off the cuff on this show today, and I, I like it. I like that we're not coming with pre-plans here, Dan. We're yeah, letting I, our emotions I, take us. I've gone with I've gone with bullet point reminders. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm not one for writing essays. He doesn't work from a script, no. Just those three bullet points, and off he goes. That's right, yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, a, a decent sort of first defense against for, for Triple H, and um, I just hope. Uh, I mean, isn't what I mentioned about Jericho, and I hope he's not just uh, the flavour of the month, and he has mm. uh, another match next month, or there's, it's not just a one and done. But I think, as you mentioned earlier, Kane maybe, maybe next month's um, number one contender. Um, I, I think that that seems to be how they're, they're leaning to. But I hope Ivy isn't forgotten. I think I hope he needs to sort of remain in that upper. Upper end of this of this of the scale. Lots to say about this one. I'm gonna <laughs> again. I'm gonna go with the good first. Well, I thought this match up until the ref bump was very good, touching on excellent. Really enjoyed this match. Yes, they really just did their own 2002 standard stuff to each other. But sometimes, if guy A does his stuff and guy B does his stuff. On occasion, that's all you need. They can come together, and the rest is alchemy. And that was the case here. Not Triple H trying to slow things down, because that's how he works these days. Okay, that's fine. But it fit the story. I believe that he was trying to keep RVD grounded. And if you turn that around 180 degrees, I believe that when Triple H kept him grounded, RVD was saying to himself, well, hang on a minute, mate. If you want to try to keep this on the map, you might have underestimated me just a little bit there as well. I thought they told a really smart story. And the little callbacks in the match with RVD missing the plancher first, but hitting it the second time. I thought their wrestling on the ground when it was there looked sound. I thought the near falls were good. Most enjoyable until the ref bump. And of course, Dan, right from the very first bell, we all knew the title wasn't changing hands here. Yeah. I've seen a lot of people very disappointed about that fact. I'm not one of them. <gasps> okay. It was. It wasn't going to happen. It's disappointing that Ivy isn't isn't uh, the world champion, but that's it. It wasn't going to be. I mean, if they were going to make him a, his time to be world champion before this would have been last year with the yeah in, in amongst the Austin angle. It's uh, not the right time. Feud. That was that was that would have been striking on the iron was very hot. Still good, it's still quite hot now, but it, it's not the electricity it was then. He needs time to. He does establish himself as as an as uh, sort of a number one guy, especially now with with the with the uh, roster split. He's got that opportunity now, potentially. He's still very much in the mix, which is a great position for him to be in. As recently as three months ago, I didn't think he'd even be there, but the mini feud with Lesnar fired him up the card, and deservedly so, and now he's rubbing shoulders with Triple H. And all the people thinking RVD should have won here, uh, in your wildest dreams, which I'm sure a lot of our fans have about RVD, and one of our contributors in particular, <laughs> do those dreams about RVD involve him becoming world champion in the middle of the card on a B pay-per-view 
on a show overshadowed by HLA winning a belt that has only existed for three weeks and was handed to the current incumbent. Now, I don't believe that's how you imagined it. I'm not saying RVD needs to win in the main event of WrestleMania, anything like that. But I do think he deserves, if he ever does become world champion, again, it's a very big if, I think he deserves to be a little bit more than that. And Triple H, like it or not, has to have a run with this title. The way he became champ, cycle back to that, they put themselves behind the eight ball. So I think we need to have a dominant heel champion on Raw. It just has to be him, doesn't it? But I think we need one, especially as, as I suspect, there's going to be a babyface champion on SmackDown before too long. The Rick fucking Flair turn. Oh, my bloody giddy aunt, man. Ugh. Maybe it wasn't so bad after all when he was the commissioner with 50%. Or maybe it wasn't so bad after all when he was a mid-card babyface wrestler. I can't even get my thoughts straight with anything involving Flair these days. <laughs> this is this is at least the third heel turn that Ric Flair did not need to make in the course of this project. In 1994, he turned because Hogan came in. They had to do that really awkward one with him and Steamboat just to make sure that the pops weren't split and bashed at the beach. But ended the double turn in early 99 with him and Hogan again, which by all accounts he requested. Uh, this was just three months after he was the babyface commissioner of the company and defeated Bischoff to hold that title. And now he shacks up with Triple H at the one point when Triple H's storyline doesn't need him. Now, we already know as smart fans that this is who Levesque thinks he is. You know, he wanted to be Ric Flair for the last 20 years. And once again, this is life and art coming together and bumping uglies. And I really don't want to see it. I don't think Flair can play an effective heel in 2002. There you go. I thought his promo the day after this on Raw was rather poor. I don't think he explained himself very well. He seemed uncertain. He seemed unsure. Uh, maybe going six to eight minutes with Chris Jericho, second from the bottom on pay-per-view, isn't so, isn't so bad after all. I, I can't be impartial about a heel Ric Flair in 2002. I just can't come to terms with it. I, I cannot be an analyst, I cannot be a podcaster, I cannot be a presenter, I cannot be a journalist. I'm scratching my face at the thought of Ric Flair as Triple H's heel bag carrier in 2002. <laughs> I can't quantify it, I can't describe it. For the sake of my own sanity in the existence of this podcast, I'm going to quickly move on. <laughs> I cannot go on, but I must go on. <laughs> just, uh, just think if this had been the main event. No small mercies, right, for all of us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah but, but at least, yeah, at least it would. something. I, it would be good for the listeners, Dan. Be good for the listeners, because this podcast recording would never end if this was the pay-per-view. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't cut it off. Brilliant. No, only death's warm embrace would stop me. But we've got to go on. After a backstage segment with D'Lo Kidman, Dawn Marie, and him out of the Young and the Restless. Me neither. We are back with our women's title match. Trish Stratus against the champion Molly, who we named our cat after. It was rolling in front of me at the mention of her name. No, not you, Molly. Off you go. Uh, nice counterfall sequence early on, and Trish has now got the basics down pat. If that sounds like fake praise, I apologise. It's just, you can't say that's great without sounding sarcastic, can you? Great snap suplex by Molly for a near fall. Massive shot to the steps by Trish's face. That one woke up the crowd a bit. Owen King with the fucking Virgin Islands joke. Molly hoiks on Trish's arms, yanks her into a surfboard position. Lovely stuff. Trish with a very direct counter. She just flings Molly to the ground. And an inside cradle snatches a two count. Roll up for two, but then Trish eats the bottom rope. Trish with the bulldog. 
probably the one move in her locker she can afford to still work on for two, and then a much better chip kick for the same result. Molly gets crushed on the top rope, don't you dare, which she reverses into the tree of woe. Lovely handspring into that by Molly, but Trish kicks out. Bulldog counter by Trish, and that gets the three. Okay, Nobody was set for that outcome, much least myself, but there we go. Trish Stratus becomes the women's champion for the third time. She then cuts a brief but emotional promo where she puts over her own hard work and bloody right too. Dan? Yeah, good match. Um, just over five minutes, so didn't really see it a lot. I mean, it could have gone, could have gone longer. I, I quite like Molly Holly and Trish, both sort of really good ring Trish coming along sort of leaps and bounds in the past couple of, couple of years. But yeah, as you say, kind of a little bit surprising they went they went with the title change. I thought um, it's a bit, a little bit out of the blue. But um, but yeah, all, all good. Um, as I say, yeah, Molly sort of is a very good um, leader of the dance, if you want to put it that way. It's the, the way that Jericho isn't, as we mentioned earlier. <laughs> but um, and got Trish to, to a, a good match. Not that Trish needs as much help as she, as she used to, but. She she's only still two and a half years into her into her career, so still sort of always always wanting to learn, and seems like someone who does really sort of want to learn, and I think that comes through in that that promo at the end that she's there's a passion there that she, mm. it, it, this isn't just a, a stepping stone to a a, a Hollywood career or or what no. or whatever that I think some uh, female uh, stars have been accused of. Just, I think clearly wants to be here, and I think this is probably then a reward for that sort of dedication and passion. That yes, you, you can, you're the, you're our go-to. I mean, Molly, like more than a good hand. I think that that will be a damning with faint praise type thing to say that. I think she's she really is good, but I think yeah, Trish, it makes sense to be like the, the head of that division, I guess, as in terms of sort of. This is the future. This is someone sort of young, upcoming, sort of talented, passionate, and fits in with with all those things that they're pushing today. Yeah, on a show which had a rather negative presentation uh, of women performers elsewhere, uh, Trish Stratus becoming women's champion again did its best to mollify the situation, pun intended. And I think it's now time. I almost feel like I've not patronised Trish at all, but I feel like I've spent a lot of time when I've been having reviewing Trish Stratus matches on this podcast. I've been saying how much she's improved and how much effort she puts in. I think now it's time to drop that. We can call her a good worker. Still things that aren't quite there. I say her bulldog doesn't look quite right, but you know what? Even if I mentioned it in the table play notes, who really cares? Now, she's inspiration to everybody, and she is now a women's wrestler you know what she's a bloody good one she's in there with the best people i can't dispute that molly's done nothing wrong as champion i hope we get a little bit of a series between them to be honest with you but trish is now at the level where she wanted to be and i think it's about time that i stop talking about trish stratus as somebody who is arriving and talk about somebody as trish stratus who has arrived and i'm just going to put this out there now i think she's a sleeper for this year's mvp award Look at the level she has got herself to. And if you want to look at MVP in the most literal terms, the most valuable player, and have another look at the women's division, 
Can you really bet against her? We'll come back to that in December. Odd moment on the show now where Michael Cole puts over the official song for this event, tells us what it's called, which is Adrenaline, tells us where to find it, the XXX film soundtrack, but not once does he tell us who the song is actually by. It turns out to be by Gavin Rossdale of Nirvana in Pyjamas, Chances Bush, but even so. Oh, by the way, while I'm here, Baby I Don't Care by Transmission Vamp, much better record than anything else any member of Bush has ever put his name to. And you know what, America, you're bloody welcome to them. Chris Benoit versus Kurt Angle. <laughs> no quarter asked or given right from the bell as they waste lock each other straight out through the ropes. And then in a great moment, they both run right back into the ring because that's where it's done. More waste action from Angle, and this is far too fast for me to type, as if I could do it justice anyway. Now they stand and look at each other, giving me a chance to catch up. Ankle takedown by Angle, and then a rolling chancery attempt for Benoit gets to the ropes. But the Staples Centre attendees aren't really responding with great enthusiasm to the wrestling before them. Yes, this is nominally a heel-heel match, but still. Angle rolls into a hammer lock and keeps it on as he stands up. Then they trade arm locks. Benoit tries another, but Angle blocks it. Lightning speed near false treatment and bears the steamboat flare bridge again. Now they get some scattered applause, but not as much as the commentators would have us believe. And it's a pity. Another grapple of wrist locks, which Angle ends by just slinging Benoit to the outside. He then drops the Wolverine onto the barricade. As if they weren't diffident enough before, now the crowd are distracted by something happening in yonder circle. Angle and Benoit wisely keep it on the mat during this time, specifically with Chris trying to grapevine the angle. Hard knee to the gut cuts off the momentum. Charging shoulders in the corner by Kurtz, but he misses a final charge. More arm work with Angle wins with his perfect overhead suplex. After a count of six, Benoit goes to the rolling Germans, but he only gets to spy before Angle switches to his own. And then they vexel back the other way from Davida. A bit more applause this time as the straps come down. Benoit blocks the Angle slam and holy happy trails, a face first suplex. Holy happy trails. Thanks for that one, Taz. I'm going to remember that. Chris goes up as Kurt hauls ass off to the top rope and suplexes him off, but no three counts. And again, very little response to the kick out. Jackknife covered by Benoit for a quick two. Then Kurt is up onto the ankle lock, but the crippler is out of it. We then tease a tombstone each. <laughs> okay, but Benoit ends that after hitting a shoulder breaker instead. Probably wise. Diving headbutt connects, but only a two after a delayed cover. It might not matter, though, as the crossface is on centre of the ring. No. Angle has grabbed the ankle as they have submission holds on each other. We then swap positions a couple of times, and it finally ends with Benoit reaching the ropes, but now the gold medalist goes to his own crossface. Angle tries to block off the ropes, but in doing so leaves himself prone for Benoit to switch to a pinning combination and put his own feet on the ropes, and that is good for the win. Dan, as you can tell by my intonation there, I loved, loved, loved the action. The crowd in attendance? Not so much. I don't know. I think I think they picked up towards the end. I think Maybe. when they were going from submission to submission transition, there was the audible, "Oh, hang on, is it who's going to win?" type thing. Mm. I think towards, I think they got it. I I think as much as you and I would want this to be a, a could have been a longer match, and we would have been happy with that. The crowd may have then suffered a bit more with it. I think giving them under fifteen minutes was probably the smart move then. In that respect, but yeah, big, big fan of this. Um, and yeah, as I just said, could easily see see it longer. And there's more to do there. That I don't think that's finished. I think um, much like um, we had 
just over a year ago. They are, they, the chemistry between the two is is brilliant, and um, glad they on they had the sense to put them on the same show. Yeah, to have the potential of them constantly being back and forth, working working with each other as and when they want them to. I think this could be a this could be a thing that once like not maybe not even every year. That every other year they have a three to four month program, go away, come back, and and potentially it, with either either them being um, being face or heel. I think both can work both well enough that that any sort of combination of them with others and or stipulations however you it just doesn't matter because it's always going to be good i think it's just we probably now have high expectations of them that sometimes good isn't good enough if that makes yeah. sense but this wasn't that this was really good and yeah could have had more definitely i will give the crowd this and it's still a wwe issue even after the nearly three years we've had where the general level of in-ring quality in the Fed, as I'm still going to call it, astronomically higher than it was in 98-99. Just look at the roster and look at the matches they can give us. As you said at the top of the show, Dan, it looks as though one of their two TV shows is now being predicated on pro wrestling ahead of anything else. Who would have thought that of a Vince McMahon presentation? That said, your average WWE fan is going to need some convincing to go with them. And great wrestling alone, and my God, did this much ever have plenty of that, still isn't quite going to be enough. Not be your average WWE punter. It might be good for Dave Meltzer, Wade Keller, even myself and some of the other wrestling 20 years ago podcast alum, but you need a little bit more. And this was a cold match. It's a heel versus heel contest, which was which came together after one of them laughed after the other one got a stink face. Now, that's pretty much where this match came from. Now, there was a little bit of one-upmanship in the week before, but not a whole lot. I think these two deserve to be fighting for something important. WWE title would be quite nice, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. But all we can go with is the quality of the wrestling. If that's your bag, and if you're the sort of person who listens to a podcast about professional wrestling rather than going out and having a life. And <laughs> thank you for listening, by the way, then you probably are. <laughs> you could do far, far worse than this, especially the first half. There's lots here. I didn't even have a chance to type. Go back and fill in those gaps. Basically the best stuff in this match was the stuff I didn't mention. Just watch it and come back and prove me wrong. As Benoit himself would say, and you won't be able to, it was outstanding wrestling, but I don't see this one factoring into any, best match of the year stakes because there were no real stakes and this is still an entertainment company this is still a tv show and even somebody like me who more than comes down of a sports sport of a sports entertainment divide it's never been a hundred zero for me you've got to have something in there wasn't their fault and this was the story they were given which basically led to go out there and wrestle each other for 14 minutes oh, all right if we must world-class action but it's missing that big something, which in the WWE, like it or not, you've always got to have. Backstage, Heyman tells Mark Lloyd that the feud between Lesnar and The Undertaker has always been personal to his clients, 
Brock himself says a few words, and to think I got some stick for dropping him that audio from last exit to Springfield last month. Stop me when I'm telling lies. Which brings us to our final match. Great video package this time, detailing the histories of both combatants, although it does rather show up amateur wrestling champion versus undead zombie who ascends through video walls. But no matter, it is Brock Lesnar defending his undisputed WWE Championship against The Undertaker. Build for this has largely consisted of Heyman making vague threats to take his wife Sarah and their unborn child. Yeah, I think we're done trying to humanise The Undertaker anymore now, eh? Let's get to the match. Brock marches right over to Taker from the bell and we get a nose-to-nose stare down. Lesnar paces around a bit, but Undertaker sneaks in the first punch. Another reset ensues before we get another reset. I see. Rutting Stag lockup also ends before it starts, and I don't think I like what they're going for here. For once, though, I am pleased to see Undertaker just shove his opponent down. Brock falls all the way out of the ring, and he is hot after that. Clothesline by the challenger puts him back out, and then Lesnar just belts the steps. I'll tell you what, Pat Bonner would have been proud of that one. <laughs> That's a reference for you. In the ring, Taker works on the shoulder. Know your audience. In the ring, Taker works on the shoulder, but it pales in comparison to the previous match. Nope, it's not really their fault. Big boot to the face, and then the flying clothesline puts him back on safer ground. And there is a two count. Old school is next. And I admit I'm already clock washing at this point. Heyman gets up on the apron and gets seen to in the way you would imagine. Lesnar with a spear to the buckle and a big suplex for a count of two. He drags UT thigh first to the ropes, albeit the outer thigh. Empathy, right? As we settle into Slugorama for a bit. And guess which part of that word I italicised. Great power slam by Lesnar, however. And he just took off for that one. One of the move of the match. For, one of the moves of the night, really. For a near fall. And he changes up to a waist lock on the mat. That's a popular one today. Most of the crowd are getting a little restless at this point, and as such, the attempted let's go take a chance from a few sections are not taking. Tum tiddly tea. Lesnar eventually gets swung out through the ropes, just in time for Taker and Sarah's child's graduation. Ref gets bumped, and now the chokeslam is hit. No count, of course. Matt Bloody Hardy comes down to get a sniff of main event action. Yeah, don't get used to it, mate. And sees his center snuffed out by a last ride. In a confusion, Brock with a spine buster, but a delay too is all we get there. This is starting to feel dramatic at last, but still a bit synthetic. Lesnar is up after a take of DDT, but the ref is down again as a tombstone attempt is blocked. Heyman throws a chair in the ring, but Undertaker cuts it off. He fucking ends Lesnar with two shots of his own, right to the head. Bloody hell. Paul gets punched into the third row, and this is really not the time for a lull, but it's what we have. Brock is bleeding now too, and Undy goes to work on it. Big boot and leg drop for two. There's a message in there somewhere. And now the last ride. Nope. Backdrop counter by Lesnar. F5, please. Nope. Take a counters. We scrap in the corner for a bit with Heaven and to keep them apart. He just succeeds in getting bumped again. So he gets back up and then calls for the bell. Oh, out of here with that. The crowd definitely come alive this time, albeit with fully deserved booze and chance of bullshit. Brock gets choke slammed, but that doesn't really bring them back, nor do some blows in the eye away. And I'll tell you what, even Brock being thrown through the set, it happens too close to the end for it to really hit home. And we cut to black with the derision still ringing around the arena. Dan, your thoughts on the main events of In Your House Ground Zero, uh, Unforgiven 2002. <laughs> Oh, okay. Right, compose myself. <laughs> I re- I really enjoyed it up in the, up until the end, which is bit 
it's it's a shame because I was I was really enjoying it. I liked the that it was just two giants trying to destroy one another. King Kong versus Godzilla, or however you want to put it, it was it was like it was kind of like this sort of big battle of the titan type type match. But then they went and spoiled it all by saying something stupid like a ref bump. <laughs> um, <laughs> And not just the one. Poor, poor Brian Hebner got oh. took, probably took more abuse than most than the most in that match. But um, but yeah, I mean, it was it went just over twenty minutes, and it didn't feel long. I, I think we've, we've certainly had Undertaker matches go that sort of time before, and they've dragged mainly because of who he's against, more so than than the, the man himself. But no, this I think both. I mean, Brock's a, a machine, and everyone I think on this show has uh, enjoyed about how how good he already is. And I think it's I think he's sort of given some life to the Undertaker as well. I think he's he's sort of up. He's sort of almost up his game to match that, which is nothing all the way around but in terms of like the rookie and the veteran. But um. But no, really good. Uh, um, silver lining in this non-result. Does that then mean we get a rematch uh, next month or down down the line in terms of like we need to resolve this? This needs to have a a, a definite sort of end to it. Hopefully, hopefully we do. So then that's that's something to look forward to. But I, I there's no there's no joy in a in in a double disqualification no contest whatever and the crowd already proved that it instantly just booze rang out but then the post match saved it I, I, I expect then in that respect they gave them something to go home with happy mm, not sure it did okay the positives and there are some to glean from this as hoss battles go this was one of the more tolerable ones, it must be said. I mean, it's yet another string in Brock Lesnar's bow. It's what, what else does he have there in that quiver of his? Now, has anybody had a real route around? Just look at the people he has worked with in the last four or five months alone. The Hardys, RVD, The Rock, Undertaker. It's like a duck to water with this guy. In fact, you know what? Scrap what I said earlier. Put Angle in world title match. Put Benoit in a world title match. Give us those four and a half stars, because you know Brock can do it. The man is a true phenom and yes i went there and taker come at me it was far too long uh far too long <laughs> for what it was even before the appalling ending they could have done this in half the time but there seems to be a bit of an edict going around these days that all wwe main events need to touch 20 minutes my advice in life is you need to look at what you've got before you decide what you can do and chancing Brock Lesnar in a 20-minute match like this. Yes, it works, but happy accident. And The Undertaker, we've seen him in 20-minute main events before. Mm -hmm. He's still want to come up, you dear? Still want to try your luck? But <laughs> one day, it's going to happen one day, I promise you. Uh, I'm just killing time to... As I did, they were. I'm just killing time to get to that appalling ending. And whoever came up with that should be bloody ashamed of themselves. Is this just Undertaker trying to squeeze out of a job? I'll leave you to answer that one, ladies and gentlemen. Clue. Yes. But even so, there are other ways you could have done. Even a brawl to the back wouldn't have been quite as atrocious as this. Just a lame disqualification. 
real 1989 primetime wrestling feature bout stuff. You know, you don't end the match with people just punching each other too often. It doesn't happen. This is pro wrestling. Punches are going to get thrown. Referees are going to hit the ground. It's kind of priced in. And you're taking your audience on this journey. And that's the final destination. And you can talk about B-level pay-per-view shows or building for the next one all you like. I don't necessarily disagree with that concept. I'm not implacably opposed to disqualifications on pay-per-view. I don't hate disqualifications in main events. If you can make me believe that it was the only justifiable outcome. Going back to Ground Zero, that's pretty much what it was. Here, it was a 17-18 minute match that has happened to end with one of the most atrocious finishes I've seen in the WWE or anywhere else for a very, very long time. You can't shake that off. And it's the first thing anybody will think about when they discuss this match in the future, how awful and idiotic that finisher was. And it's just pissing on your crowd. And, you know, you cannot push the loyalties of your fans too far. I know it's said that WWE fans will accept anything, probably to a fault. There's too much truth in that, <laughs> all told. But don't take the risk. And just because it is a B pay-per-view doesn't mean you can get away with it. doesn't mean you should get away with it. Let that be a lesson to you. I think it's time to sum up our thoughts on Unforgiven 2002 now. So, Dan, if you could give us your final summing up and a score rating out of 10. As we've talked about this, it, it's changed. I think I think I, I started the call uh, sort of being towards a, a seven and a half or sort of eight would eight would be a, a, a stretch. And I think I was probably even going to say it on a seven. But as we've talked about it, I think I'm going to have to I'm going to have to go six just because I think I'm that annoyed by HLA and all that stuff. I think it's just yeah. it's just sell it that much there's not enough but their angle was, was really good uh, <clears throat> the opener really good as well as was eddie eddie and edge but of those i as you said i'd only recommend benoit angle to someone who look if you don't watch the top over you watch this the others were good but i would i wouldn't sort of clamor at someone to they have to watch this so on that one Really, one sort of must-watch match. Some really good ones, but then a hell of a, a, a big sort of sour point. Uh, yeah, as much as I, I did enjoy the, the heavyweight title, uh, not the heavyweight title, the um, WWE title match at the end. I will, yeah, you're you're right. You don't end it like that though. So, yeah, I'm, I'll set on, I will settle for six. Yeah, I'm going for a seven down to a six myself. There was enough here and B-level pay-per-view caveats. There was enough here for me to recommend a lot of this show. I thought the opener was a lot of fun. I thought the World Heavyweight title match was better than certainly I expected it to be. Angle and Benoit, need I say more. And Brock Lesnar's power slam in the main event is the one thing I would like people to remember from that match. But we all know what it will really be. But there were drag factors on here. The ending to the pay-per-view, did I mention that before? This will forever be known as the hot lesbian action pay-per-view. Not a hot lesbian action pay-per-view, the hot lesbian action pay-per-view, and all that that entails. So I'm giving Unforgiven 2002, in the end, a rather sorry 6 out of 10.
and we are back in October 2022 and we're just going to stay here for a little while longer and talk about some of the pro wrestling events we have witnessed in the last week. I was in Glasgow for an afternoon with William Regal whereas Dan you were in South London taking in a little bit of NJPW action. Now I don't allow much NJPW chats on this podcast so make the most of it while you can. How did you enjoy the Royal Quest weekend? Boys, I don't think we're ever going to see an NJPW volume coming soon. <laughs> that would involve a lot of research, I think, from a, a lot of us. I don't think, but um, and today I don't see myself as a as a massive um, New Japan fan at all. I it was just the case of they're they're reasonably local to me, and they're doing shows coming off the going to see Clash of the Castle, so I was in the mood to watch more live wrestling, even though I booked them before, but it was, it was in my head to do it, so I thought, yeah, sod it, why not? I know enough of the people there, I think I probably knew the majority of the people on the card, and I watch New Japan sort of infrequently, so I justified it myself, it worth going to see both both Saturday and Sunday shows, and yeah, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, Great atmosphere in there. It's it's a it may as well be sort of like a, a, a it's a sports center, so it's like a gym with like a basketball court type thing and set sets up there. But they got about two thousand in both nights, so and that's sort of kind of a quite a small, seemingly small space. So it amplified every reaction. Uh, being they did, it felt like more than two thousand at times being there, especially with the main event of night one um ftr and um aussie open easily match of the weekends a good half an hour tag match of back and forth and all the all the good stuff you'd expect from those two teams especially ftr i think everyone has seen a lot of their stuff recently and is very happy with what they're seeing and I've read since, and people talking about potential match of the year candidate for that for that match, and I would I would be happy with that one. I I think it's a it's a fair fair one, especially tag match of the year certainly. Um, rest of the rest of the card was fine. I think it was just something different to see that I. It's not my usual go to WWE viewing, and yeah, looking forward to probably a few more ventures out into the wider world of wrestling as and when they they appear again now that we're I want to say the, the world's not back to normal there's no such thing as normal and it, it, it's not back to where it was a few years ago in many many aspects but but now we can go and watch wrestling live again I'm definitely going to pick it up again so maybe if I'm on as and when I'm on these shows again I might this may become a little Two minute, three minute segment of me reporting from the the modern world, as 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 it were. But yeah, over to you, Rory. How was Mr. Regal? Ah, oh, what a true gent indeed. I went there knowing what to expect. Having heard him on a fair few podcasts in the past, I know that he is a bit of a rambler. Poor old Kenny McIntosh of Inside the Ropes. I could see from where I was sat. He had fifteen questions in his hand. If he managed to ask five of them in the ninety minutes. He did well. 
really was just all over the shop. You know, this was a person who answered a question about working with The Rock in a SmackDown main event in 2000 by talking about Billy Robinson, because that's just what he does. But you cannot deny that he runs the gamut of information. As he himself said, yes, I ramble a bit, but you won't hear this stuff anywhere else. And he gave us some fascinating tidbits. I loved his story about his first day in WCW, shaking hands with a naked Dusty Rhodes. Oh, that's an image it's going to take a while to shake off. Uh, talked about the World War Three 1995 and the day where Dave Taylor stiffed Hulk Hogan. I rather enjoyed that one. One of many Dave Taylor stories that he gave us. Uh, talked about the importance of working with a hard camera. He dispelled a few myths on WWE scripted promos. Things aren't quite as rigid as some of the WWE opposers would like to have you believe. And some of the attendants uh, made pretty clear what their promotion of choice was. They were bristling in their seats at that and I allowed myself a small smile because... Uh, it's all still pro wrestling and it's wrong to say that one side gets everything right and one side gets everything wrong. So one view there. And I could have heard him talk for ages and ages and ages. The man got a standing ovation at the end and quite rightly so. Our own Eric Lamster said to us in our chat that he would gladly hear William Regal read the phone book. Well, what he did at this show was not too far away from that. So, of course, got my highest, highest recommendation, a full 10 out of 10 from one of our finest raconteurs. And yes, I'm going to say it, a bloody national treasure too. And so, Dan, just before we wrap up, anything else you want to plug or mention? Um, nothing much more to, to, to add. It's been, it's been good to be on, on here again. It's always, always fun. Um, and, yeah, sometimes I surprise myself with what comes out of my mouth, but there we go. Didn't think I'd get that angry about HLA. But... I, I, wasn't expecting a, I wasn't expecting a paraphrase of something stupid either. No, I don't, no I, I don't think that, that definitely wasn't it. Where did he pull that one from? To do. But there we go. Um, and yeah, nothing, nothing to to plug for, for me. Um, just yeah, stay listening to the to the show, and uh, yeah, next one looks fun already. Having sort of. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm not on that one. Uh, do go back and check out our review of Clash at the Castle, by the way, if you're still hankering for us to talk about modern day wrestling a little bit more. Uh, I was on that show with Dan, with Pete Kimber and Adam Joyce, uh, reviewing our weekend at the Clash at the Castle event in Cardiff. But we should be sticking with just 2002 all the way until the end of the year, including the end of year award show. Do find us on social media. You've got me on the Twitter. You've got Adam on the Facebook. And that just about does it, I think, for another month. So from Dan DeWitt, I have been Rory McNamara. 